Welcome to A Life in Biography. Thank you. Um, I usually start by asking uh, my guests to say a little bit about themselves and how they became interested in their biographical subject, or in your case, subjects, in political lives. So tell us a little about yourself. My first career was as a political and economic journalist in the Canberra Press Gallery. So Canberra is our Washington. So I was a like a long-time member of the Washington Press Corps here. Uh, and as I went along in my my vocation, I felt there was a, a deeper way of, of looking at things. And I ended up uh, doing a PhD in history at the Australian National University and went into a second career as an academic political historian. And um, biography was actually the bridge between those two careers. Uh, as a young journalist, I started writing biographies. My first one was of a, a, an opposition leader here uh, about whom little was known and it looked like he might get elected. So I thought as a public interest exercise, someone ought to find out who he was, what he thought and why he thought it and how that could impact on us. So that was my bridge into biography. I followed that up with a biography of Australian feminist Jermaine Greer and then uh, subsequently a couple of other works. And this latest book, Political Lives, in fact, grew out of a failed attempt at biography uh, of Australia's first woman Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, a book I wrote that then decided to spike when it became the focus of uh, potential misuse in a, a very intense political storm in Australia during Gillard's prime ministership. So you're telling me you wrote a whole biography and you didn't publish it. That's right, Carl. Sounds nuts. But, um, <laughs> but look, it led to this book, Political yes. Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. And really this book it set out to answer the question, had any previous biographer of a contemporary Australian Prime Minister ever faced the same conundrum I did uh, when I spiked that book? And that is the realisation that one can observe all proper biographical norms in, in terms of, uh, you know, ethical approach and behaviour and have it potentially misused by others for their own purposes if it's released in the particular kind of political storm that Gillard faced at that moment. Uh, I took the hard decision that I did not want to even indirectly be a player in the massive pile-on onto Gillard at that moment where she was being attacked viciously uh, by the opposition then leader Tony Abbott and his media allies and at the same time being, at, being undermined viciously from within her own party, the Labor Party, uh, by the allies of the Prime Minister she succeeded. Uh, I just didn't want to be a part of that and I wanted to look at the last century of Australian Prime Ministers and go, well, did anyone else fail, face that dilemma? And as part of that, I actually had to go and find out who wrote the biographies, uh, who were they, why did they write the biographies, what was the relationship between them and their subjects. And I restricted myself to books written in the lead up to or during the careers of 100 years of Australian prime ministers, because these were the books that could actually affect the career trajectory of those politicians. Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't think there are many historians or biographers, I know we could name perhaps a few, uh, who look at 
the, the biographies of biographers, so to speak, or biographies of historians, where we really go into who's telling the story. Um, I think that's one of the things I find most attractive about your book and what I can't find. Uh, there, there's no equivalent, I don't think, to your book. I remember asking you this in an email. Uh, if you know of other books like yours, and as far as I know, there aren't any. Yes, I think you're right about that. Um, in fact, someone invented a new tag for this kind of book, Metabiography. Yes. Uh, and I think it's it's a growing area because there needs to be much more awareness of what biographers are up to when they write a biography. And I think that's especially true in the case of contemporary political biographies. So what did you find out going back to those first biographies? Um, did, did, did these biographers face some of the dilemmas that you encountered? Well, the first surprise was how different the political biography cultures of Australia, Britain and the US are. Uh, because I, I began this project by thinking I'd do a comparative work. But in fact, the Australian material took up 100,000 words. So I had to abandon the comparative approach pretty early on. But the first shock was, uh, you know, you would be familiar uh, in the US, in North America, campaign biographies really have existed virtually since the existence of democratic politics and often, yes. and often following a pretty... Uh, defined log cabin template. In contrast, I found that in Australia and Britain, there was, in fact, in the early 20th century, a culture of not ever writing biographies of, of uh, prime ministers or aspirant prime ministers. It was, it's very different. And so that was the first surprise. Um, the second surprise was how, as biographies came to be written, particularly picking up from the post-World War II period on, how terribly reliant uh, readers were on journalists to write these biographies. Of course, journalists uh, writing famously the first draft of history were the ones on the spot with the direct knowledge relationships and understanding of the political dynamics of you know, politics as it's being played. Um, Australia's got a really heavy reliance on political journalists doing the heavy lifting with the writing of political biography here. And I think that's something we, we need desperately to broaden out from. Yeah, it's, it's it, the, that interaction between the journalists and the political figure, I think is really, really uh, significant. Um, to what extent in your book, do you, do you feel these biographers have a, a, a consciousness, even as journalists, that what they're writing, uh, that they face some of the same issues that you did in terms of what impact is this work going to have on this uh, politician's career? Well, it's really interesting. I think one of the issues with journalists writing predominantly in this area is journalists are great. You know, my first career was as a journalist. I still write occasional commentary and analysis. Uh, I think being a, being a journalist is like being tattooed. You know, it, it, yes. it's a thing that happens and you never lose it and it's a good thing. <laughs> not least because it, it gives you really good um, primary research uh, experience. And this is something that academics who at desks and in libraries and in archives, usually dealing with dead subjects, aren't often that experienced in. But one of the problems is there can be a lack of reflexivity, you know, a lack of thoughtfulness and, and 
and conscious meditation on the nature of the task. So we've definitely gained by journalists writing these biographies in the absence of historians and others being willing to do so. But we've lost in terms of lack of reflexivity, sometimes lack of historical perspective, sometimes lack of depth. Um, but one of the focuses of the book is what exactly is the nature of the dynamic between the author and the subject. And that has been really interesting. Uh, I had a completely open mind about whether these biographies, in fact, were generally on a mission to either help or hurt the subjects concerned. Um, I found, interestingly, that nearly all of them were pretty neutral. Uh, one was definitely designed to hurt the Prime Minister that was the subject of the biography. But overall, it's been a pretty responsible and useful approach. And in the case of living Prime Ministers and their living biographers, I interviewed both sides to get that, try and get into that dynamic, what's going on between the two. And that led to some really interesting material in the latter part of the book. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to get to the latter part of the book. I didn't want to overshadow the earlier part, but maybe you could say some more about this dynamic. I, I want to get, of course, to Bob Hawke, because that's, that's a fascinating subject in and of itself, the relationship with the biographer. That's true. Well, you, you said you didn't, don't want to skip there too early. I, I draw attention to another big difference uh, in the implications of this for our respective polities uh, for Australians our founding fathers are pretty much absent fathers in contrast to the situation in America, uh, where the founding fathers are, of course, much story, you know, iconic figures, uh, people every American knows about. In Australia, most Australians could not tell you who our first prime minister was uh. or, or who the first half dozen were. Uh, they're kind of lost in time. And that's been one of the, the problems flowing from the lack of biographies at the time uh, and now. In, in one case, uh, one of the early prime ministers wasn't, didn't have a biography written of him for a century until after he was in office. Um, mm. So that, that gap is, has been massive. But the post-war period saw a bit of a change and then from the time, from the late 60s, early 70s onwards, things started to accelerate not least because Australia lacked a publishing industry of its own uh, until pretty much the late 60s, early 1970s. And if you don't have a domestic publishing industry, it's very difficult to get biographies of any kind published, let alone political biographies. Um, but from that late 60s, early 70s period onwards, things really picked up. So that's interesting. So there really, in a sense, there wasn't a market uh, for biography, biographies of political leaders? Well, there may, there may have been a market if anyone thought to uh, create the, the books that could address interest and address it. Um, yeah. but, but we were very much a kind of British Empire outpost until uh, World War II. We began to develop some, some very specific political consciousness as an independent nation um, many of your listeners will know that, you know, it was at that time um, in relation to the Pacific War that uh, a Labor government, the Labor government of John Curtin, turned to the US and very consciously pivoted Australia away from the primacy of the relationship with the UK. So that, that was a, a big change. 
Yeah, I'm beginning to see this now. I hadn't thought about it when I was reading your book, but yes, the the fact that the United States, uh, you know, uh, with its political leaders, beginning with George Washington, is not thinking of itself as an outpost uh, of an empire, is is turning its back on that that kind of that vision of the world, and as a result, beginning with George Washington, the, the president of the United States becomes a kind of uh, well. Washington, of course, is called father of the country, but they become mythological figures in a way that I guess just isn't, isn't the case in Australian history. That's right. And it's a real problem because if you don't know your history, you know, what are you avoiding? I think in, in the case of frontier nations, and Australia is still in many senses, uh, in parts, a bit of a frontier nation still, the, the habit of forgetting can be too convenient, Carl. And it's very yes. important that the journalists and especially the historians don't let large lacunae exist in, his, in our kind of collective consciousness. So this is important work. You know, it's not just about knocking out a book. This is about how you actually understand your nation and how you, you run it well and ethically. And I think biography has a really big role to play in that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's still understood here. I mean... Um... Biographies of presidents are, are um, often quite popular. You can find biographies of presidents in airport bookstores, for example, uh, more likely to find those than biographies of even very important literary figures. But is, in terms of the, the sort of the status or the prestige of biography with, with some significant exceptions, certainly, um, biographers are not thought of uh, as... Uh, having a major impact, I suppose, on the political history of the nation. The historical profession itself is, uh, again, with some significant exceptions, it doesn't turn really to biography. What happened in Australia? How do we get from these early prime ministers who people don't know much about or don't know anything about and don't have that many biographers to someone like Bob Hawke? Yes, so for, for your listeners who don't know who Bob Hawke is, and that'll be most of them, I would expect. Uh, Bob Hawke was a Labor Prime Minister. That's like your Democratic Party. He was a Labor Prime Minister in Australia from 1983 to the end of 1991. And prior to that, he was the president of our National Trade Union Federation, the Australian Council of of Trade Unions. And he was a very unusual person. He was... uh, you know, I don't know if you have them in politics over there, but, you know, the short guy with the big hair, incredibly charming, eloquent, engaging, um, kind of if the Democrats had a George W. Bush type of person, he, you know, that's kind of who Bob Hawke is. And he had a, a very turbulent personal life. He was a wild philanderer. He was a shocking drinker, uh, but tremendously talented politically talented and seen by people outside politics, but interestingly not seen by people inside politics as someone who almost inevitably would become Australian Prime Minister. And uh, he eventually got a seat in Parliament and continued drinking, performed poorly as a parliamentarian. Uh, This is in opposition in the lead up to the 83 election, 1983 election. And... You know, on the outside, people expected Bob to just walk into the 
Labor leadership and then become Prime Minister. But on the inside, people could see the, the shocking philandering and, and drinking, you know, to the point of alcoholism, uh, that it was unlikely he would have the personal discipline to actually get the Prime Ministership and be a good Prime Minister. Now, he had amongst his large cast of, of lovers a fantastic Australian writer called Blanche Delpuget. Uh, she had served an, an apprenticeship on newspapers in Sydney and had gone on to marry a diplomat, been posted in Asia, a uh, very significant posting in Jakarta. And during that time, she segued from being a journalist to being a really fine Australian novelist. And Del Puget and Bob Hawke became lovers. Uh, she realised over time that she was just one among many. Eventually... Hawke realised that there was something particularly special about Del Puget and he, in fact, said, will you marry me? And Blanche Del Puget said yes. Then some weeks later, she gets the phone call from Bob and he dumps her. <laughs> he says, we, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't go through with this. Uh, if I leave my wife, Hazel, you know, it's a, they had a very public marriage, he and Hazel with several kids. If I leave Hazel... It could mean a couple of percentage points harm to Labor in the election I hope to lead it to and win. So this was pretty brutal, Carl. Um, yes. And that could have been it. And it certainly was completely devastating for Blanche Dole Puget. But then as time got closer to, the, to uh, the election and Bob Hawke and his allies were busy trying to craft his ascension to the Labor leadership, uh, someone decided to write a biography of him, Robert Pullen, very good Australian journalist. And Hawke thought, well, you know, maybe I should organise a biography. And he <laughs> Blanche Del Puget, having brutally dumped her, ran the idea by her and she had already written a very fine biography of a judicial figure in Australia and she was completely intrigued by Hawke, even though that, that had this brutal breakup. And she said, yes, I, I will write your biography. And that was the beginning of the most remarkable exchange between a biographer and their subject I think I've ever, ever read. Uh, well, I, I, to me, I'm just absolutely, what's the word, gobsmacked. I mean, it's just, uh, I wrote about this in, in my review of your book in the New York Sun. I know of nothing comparable to this, not just that the biographer has some kind of you know personal connection uh, to the subject, but is the subject's lover is dumped by the lover, and then ultimately you know ends up writing a biography of the lover. Um, and what I find fascinating about this in your book is um, you tell that whole story but you tell it without any kind of, what can I say, um, uh, moral judgments, I suppose, uh, I would say, unless I miss them. Uh, they're, they're, that's not the way the book goes. Well, there's a, you know, this is where the early first career as a journalist kicks in. You know, we're, we all have points of view about things, but as professionals, can we put those aside and tell the story straight? And that's what I've tried to do throughout this book and throughout all my work. Um, and it is an incredible story. Uh, think about it. Bob Hawke is still with his wife and kids. 
living in Sandringham, which is a beachside suburb in Melbourne. Blanche Del Puget agrees to write this book. Unbeknownst to Bob, she is in a relationship with a man that has nothing to do with, with politics and Bob doesn't realise it. They start meeting at the home of a mutual friend around the corner from his home in Sandringham who was a psychiatrist. And the interviews for the book begin. Now, Bob Hawke is still at peak philanderer, peak drinker, they they become lovers again <laughs> without Hawke realising that Blanche is in a different relationship. And, of course, Bob being who Bob is, who knows how many women he was involved with at that time. But they become lovers again. And, of course, Freud's royal road to the unconscious was often pursued, you know, on a, on a couch in his consulting room. Here are, Here's the biographer and the subject in the home <laughs> of this psychiatrist around the corner from his actual family home and the interviews begin. And... Your, your listeners may mistake this for a hagiography in the making. Carl, far from it. Yeah. Blanche Del Puget did that classic journalistic craft thing that many biographers also follow, many of whom also started out as journalists. Um, Blanche went and searched back the deepest roots of Bob Hawke's childhood and moved forward. She went to the distant place in Australia where the remaining elderly aunts, cousins, uncles, etc., were uh, community figures who, re who remembered the family from when, from when Bob was very young. She got the, the dramatic family stories and brought them back to that psychiatrist's house in Sandringham and confronted Bob with elements of his early life history that he had spent his whole life avoiding. Mm. She managed to make him confront them and, in a way, resolve them in, as she was writing the biography in a way that effectively reformatted his personality and enabled him to come up with craft the persona, the effective human being, who could sell himself to, the Labor, to his Labor Party colleagues as someone who could be trusted to be Labor leader, who could win an election and who could lead the nation effectively. And critical in that was that this, this interaction, this dynamic, this engagement between biographer and subject in this case enabled the resolution of crucial problems that enabled him to stop drinking. And from that, from that discipline, Bob Hawke craft, crafted an incredibly effective Labor leadership and Prime Ministership which, has, which stood Australia in great stead right up to and including today. And when you read the, the story of this, you do wonder, had it not been for the biographer in this case, would Bob Hawke have ever got himself together enough to be that disciplined, credible, non-drinking figure who really could be a great national leader? Well, two things here. One, what an incredible biographer. Um, if you had set up sort of hypothetically someone like Blanche, uh, you would not say that she was pursuing what people often, the term they use here, and maybe they use in Australia too, she was not exactly pursuing best practices. She was getting <laughs> the story her way. Yeah. And, and the, the biography that resulted, I think, is in the 20th century 
far and away the outstanding political biography written of a contemporary political figure in Australia, full stop. It includes nearly all of the warts and all that were to be had. There was very, there was pretty much only one big thing held back. And that was the, the shocking story of Bob winning a Rhodes Scholarship to go from Western Australia to Oxford to study uh, something that you couldn't do as a married person with children. Oh. And, and Blanche did indeed find out about the fact that Bob had induced his wife to have an abortion of twins in order to be able to get his Rhodes Scholarship. Now, had that been written at the time when he was an opposition frontbencher rather than Labor leader and Prime Minister, you know, you'd, you'd have to say probably he wouldn't have become Labor leader and Prime Minister. So shocking a story is that, uh, so self-interested. The reason Del Puget didn't include it was not because it would hurt his political prospects, but because Hazelhawk, who reluctantly cooperated but did cooperate in the writing of the biography, did not want this made public. Mm. And interestingly, the other person who was writing a biography of Hawke at the time, Robert Pullen, he got the story himself independently and he only didn't put it in the biography because, again, being a craft-trained journalist, the rule is if you find something out, you've got to get a second corroborating source Oh, otherwise yeah. you can't write it and he could not get a corroborating source otherwise he would have written it so mm. Bob Hawke you know they often say in politics give me a lucky general um, Bob Hawke was one of those lucky generals for both of his biographers in the lead up to him winning the leadership and becoming prime minister prime minister he was very lucky that in neither book did that pretty shocking and likely highly damaging story appear the other thing that uh, Del Puget holds back is her own involvement in the story, doesn't she? Well, she does, but I think it comes back to that, um, you know, that journalistic talent also mm -hmm. possessed by great barristers of irrespect of the person you're dealing with, you can be professional. Mm -hmm. and no one could say Blanche wasn't professional. Um, most people inside Canberra politics thought that this book would be tremendously damaging for Bob Hawke, that it would yes. ensure he didn't get the Labor leadership because it included the philandering, you know, the, the, the heavy drinking, a lot of unattractive aspects of Hawke's character to that point. They thought it would really hurt him. They didn't understand that, you know, th this is kind of an early example in Australia of what you guys would call dust-busting. You know, you get the bad stuff out, you structure it yourself yeah. rather than allow your enemies to discover it and use it against you first. Um, it's, yeah. And it was, it, it was very effective, but it was, it was the whole book, the original book is just a fantastic read. Yeah. She was also fortunate, that is, the biographer was fortunate in the sense that the nature of the subject she was dealing with, someone who, who as she was, as, you know, digging into his past and then confronting him with it, he didn't just close up and shut her out. He was very much like one of those people who 
lives out his psychic life on the public stage mm. and did all his life, incredibly psychologically complex. I might add that when the book came out and they finished doing the rounds, kind of promoting it, uh, that was the end of them as lovers. Blanche flew out of Australia for the Northern Hemisphere and didn't come back for quite a long time. And Bob knuckled down, won the election, became Prime Minister, didn't drink, worked really, really hard, did not get back together with Blanche Dolpuget until very late in his prime ministership. Um, subsequently, when he left politics, he uh, ended up divorcing his wife after a few years and marrying Blanche Dolpuget in the end. So quite a story, quite a story. <laughs> I'm waiting for the movie. <laughs> There's been a miniseries, actually. Oh, has there? It has. Oh, I have to look for that. I wonder if that's available in the U.S. That, that's, that's an amazing story. I also wonder in your, your own book. I, sh I should just add there, Carl, it's, yeah. not, it's not this story that's in my book. It's the story of Hawke's prime ministership. And, of course, yes. Blanche yeah. does appear in that tangentially. And then, of course, in the end. The great love story resumes and is resolved happily for them. As you see it, um, given your background as a journalist um, and the academic life, in a sense, is a second career, um, that's given you certain advantages um, that maybe other, other academics, other academic biographers don't have. Do you see it that way? It's put me in that bridge position where I can look to journalists on one side and look to historians on the other uh, or to English literature academics who write biography, depending on which tradition you're working in, um, and seeing both and dealing in a world where mostly people are in one or the other world and do not understand the other camp. So, yeah. for, so for example, if you're in Britain, and uh, to an extent in Australia, the tradition is really about life writing. It's, it's very much uh, in the academic side of things coming from English lit uh, yes. departments. Yes. Whereas in the US, I think it comes much more from a historical perspective. And that's, that's quite a big element here too. But in, in, in the UK, not so much. So I see a lot of, um, how can I put it? a lot of innocence on journalists' part in that they don't realise how especially academic historians look down on journalists. Uh, they're very sniffy about journalists writing books. They think, ha, writers, first, writers are the first draft of history, you know, first drafts, yeah. what a joke. Um, so they, they tend to be a bit snobbish about journalists and the books they write. However, Carl, they are often incredibly reliant on the That's work right. of journalists yeah. and those books in writing their own books uh, that typically come later when, when and, of, and of course we need those books, we, we need many more of them, um, I mean, many, many different kinds of subjects, but, but that kind of snobbery is, is, is not well-based in my view. But on the other hand, journalists mostly do not understand that there's a deeper way of looking at things, that you need that deep historical context and thinking to really do right by your subject. And I think there's a lot more room for developing journalists' reflexiv reflexivity so that they can actually get that and develop 
and kind of meet halfway because there's a sweet spot uh, and it's, it's necessary in contemporary politics for more books to be written in that sweet spot because voters make big decisions about the future of nations affecting us all and we want them to be the best informed they can. That That's only right. happens when we get good biographies of leaders on offer who are, who are touting for our votes. If we don't have the biographies, we can't accurately size up whether they're fit for office or not. One of the things that's often said, certainly in, in uh, academic life and scholarship, is uh, journalists uh, often write biographies of living figures. And I will often hear from colleagues, you know, well, you, you have to wait until the person's dead. To which my answer is, if you wait until the person's dead, if you say oh, biography can't, you know, it can't be complete because the person's life is incomplete, I understand that. On the other hand, if you wait, a lot of people have died, a lot of the sources have dried up, so to speak, uh, and you don't, you, you, you don't, even someone coming later certainly has more perspective. And in some ways, more material if there's archival material. But on the other hand, there could be a lot of material lost if, if there aren't these early biographies. Exactly. And one of the prime ministers I interview in, in this book, Paul Keating, a Labor prime minister who succeeded Bob Hawke and led Australia from late 1991 through to 1996, he puts it beautifully. He, he says these kind of sometimes mid-career biographies uh, I like snapshots in time, Polaroids yeah. in time, that catch a whole lot of stuff and sources and things and anecdotes and perspectives that are completely lost by the time, you know, often even by the time someone is in their prime ministership, let alone afterwards. So he he has a has a fairly cast a fairly hard eye on them, but he can see their really important role in preserving perspectives and sources and stories that would otherwise be lost because, you know, when we write biographies later on, even if it's late in the life of a serving prime minister or, you know, afterwards or when they're dead, everything gets kind of compressed and conflated and there's an awful lot of retrospectoscope, if I can put it that way, applied. Yes. And yes. it's it's the the... the Judy, you know, the, the great work that often these journalistic biographers do in preserving those contemporary accounts, especially the mid-career accounts, are often fantastically vital sources for historians later if they are smart enough to be open to the data. So if this is true, shouldn't you publish your biography of Gallard? Well, of course, I've thrown nothing away. No, no writer <laughs> would do that. Um, but, of course, perspectives are, are, are different now, and I would take that material and use it as part of a different kind of work. Um, it was a very turbulent, damaging period in Australian politics, and it's, it's really affected our ongoing politics because it's created the false idea that uh, if you're a woman in national politics, you can't succeed. Yeah, and it's it's just plain wrong because at the level of our states, you know, you have governors, we have premiers. Uh, just this week, the longest-serving woman premier in Australian history, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the premier of Queensland, is standing down just ahead of her fourth elect. What would have been her fourth election? 
She won three elections in a row. She's fantastically mm. successful in one of the most frontierish frontier Australian states of Queensland. Um, I, I know a Queenslander who refers to Queensland actually as, you know, Australia's Louisiana. So that gives you a bit of a <laughs> picture there. So people are very really resistant to actual data. And I've heard people around Parliament House in Canberra point to Gillard and say, you know, women can't win. And you say, why? And they say, Queensland. And then you say, but Anastasia Palaszczuk won, just won three elections in a row. And it's, it's like you haven't spoken. People like to hold on to their self-serving uh, myths. And it's, it's part of our job as biographers to present the data and to kind of hammer away at, at, at false belief and open people up to who these people really are, what they can do for good and bad. And, you know, at the end of the day, voters need it. I have to say, uh, after reading your book and certainly talking to you as well, and, and I've often sort of said this when, when I've done my own biographies, is every time I start a new biography, it's like learning so many things about biography itself all over again, because the subject changes and the conditions changes and change and the times change and so on. Um, in, in, in a way, um, given what what we learned about Del Puget's experience, um, how can we talk about in some abstract way or universal way that there is such a thing as best practices in biography? It seems so unique to the particular subject and biographer we're dealing with. Yeah, look, I, I think there's a whole lot of novices who just barge into biography uh, wide-eyed and innocent. Carl, I was one of them. Uh, you, lear <laughs> you learn on the job often in this life. Yes, it is um, learning on the job, yeah. Is it, is it ideal? No, but, you know, one of the best things you can do as a biographer is read lots of biography, read lots of history. Um, one, of our fan one of our great advantages as biographers is people love biography. They will pick up and read a biography, for example, of a political figure when they won't read a political history of, of that person's administration. So yes. that's another dimension of my book, Political Lives, is really a cunning way of writing a 20th century political history of Australia without scaring off readers. I mean, yeah. I'll read about the lives ahead of reading the history any time, and that's partly because... Uh, we academic historians, um, you know, including myself there, uh, out of collegiate solidarity, often we write for each other, not for readers more broadly. Yeah. And there's there's no excuse for that. One of history's historical strengths as a discipline is it is the space for good writing. Yeah. We, just have to, we just have to remember to write it for everybody, not just each other. That's right. And, and uh, they have to be a little sneaky. Like you, well, crafty, <laughs> crafty to good effect. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. Um, I'm reading your The Last Days of Sylvia Plath at the minute. God, that's a cracking read. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, I, I, I um, uh, there are aspects of that book, certain parts of that book, in which I free myself of certain restraints, I think, that, that uh, I was under in other books uh, simply because of my academic training. Uh, and it seems the older I get, the, the looser I get. 
in in terms of what I allow myself to say in my own voice. Well, I, I like I noticed that and I liked it a lot because it's that kind of metabiography thing. We actually get yes. to to reflect with you on the process of biography. Uh, yeah. it, so it's incredibly useful. But Carl, you did it at the right point in your career. You'd written a lot of biography by then. You knew what you were doing. Um, it's it's something you wouldn't want an early novice biographer doing because you just wouldn't know enough at that point to start thinking. I think yeah, you should I, do yeah. in that book. It's great work. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's it's just been a pleasure talking to you. And I I look forward to reading the next thing you write. Terrific. Catch you in the U.S. sometime. Yes. Oh, yeah, that would be great to meet. That, that'd be very good.